Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage. And coming up, how environmental factors such as climate change can influence national security. The environment does play a role, and sometimes it's the thing that pushes a country over to the edge. And the phenomenon of a world filled with buttons that don't actually do anything. Pedestrians became less willing to jaywalk because they were more likely to heed a system that paid attention to their input. But first... The editing of the genomes of two embryos that are now baby girls by a Chinese scientist last year brought much condemnation, but it also brought a lot of criticism, including on how this sort of thing might be expected in a place like China with its suspected looser regulation. Dig deeper, though, and what happens starts to look even more intriguing than just the story of a lone maverick scientist, as there are suggestions that there were Western scientists also linked to the project. And thus, it may be an example of a phenomenon called ethics dumping. To combat this practice, the European Commission has sponsored a three-year project called Trust. And to discuss the issue, I'm joined on the phone by the leader of the Trust Group, Professor Doris Schroeder, who is also the director of the Center for Professional Ethics at the University of Central Lancaster. So to begin, what is ethics dumping? Ethics dumping is the practice of moving research from an area where it would be prohibited or severely restricted into an area where there are fewer legal governance mechanisms. For instance, animal experimentation research is very strongly regulated in Europe and much less regulated in, say, Kenya. So sometimes researchers with funding from Europe go to Kenya to undertake research on non-human primates that would be prohibited in their own country. How long has it been going on for and why are we talking about it now? I would have thought that ethics dumping has always been going on since the beginnings of research. The reason why people are talking about ethics dumping more now is because of the many mobility programs that there are now for researchers. It's much easier also for younger researchers who may be less experienced with ethical questions as well to move their research from Europe or other high-income settings to, for instance, African countries. Now there are mobility programs that allow younger researchers to travel to other countries. That's uh, one point. But of course, there is the older globalization advantage, one could call it for uh, researchers, that sometimes it does make sense to move research to countries where it is simply much uh, cheaper. And so who is affected by the practice? It's not just about these big trials. It's very much also about exploiting vulnerable populations, such as, for instance, indigenous uh, populations, who will, for instance, have 
valuable traditional knowledge, or as in the case of the Sun community in the Kalahari, meant to have the oldest genome that exists. So they are very valuable to researchers, and they get nothing in return for providing, for instance, blood samples. So what more needs to be done? Firstly, more funders or more institutions need to adopt it. Uh, this particular code um, was released in the European Parliament uh, last June, and it was immediately adopted by the European Commission Horizon 2020 Framework Program. So it already covers a very large number of researchers. And at the moment, we are in discussion with various high-profile universities who want to adopt it for their groups. So is it important for every country to have their own individual codes or their own set of ethics? They do have their own culture, but what about applying rules? Um, that's a very important aspect, but the beauty of what we did on the Trust Project is that we initially we derived four global values, so a new moral framework that was supported from people from all continents, and that's around fairness, respect, care and honesty. And these four values, they drive the individual ethics codes because they were accepted globally. And we're hoping that using this particular moral framework will also make it easier for people to see what are the local differences. Because one of the things that is most important for both codes is that there isn't one group that makes decisions for another group, but that all research elements from the start to the finish are discussed collaboratively between the partners, including those from low- and middle-income countries. Dr. Schroeder, thank you very much. Thanks for asking me. You can read more about ethics dumping in this week's issue of The Economist. And if you like our journalism, consider taking out a subscription. Go to economist.com slash radiooffer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Next up, Climate change and conflict, or if you prefer, green wars. Perhaps a little-known consequence of climate change is how environmental factors can influence national security in the countries affected. One person studying this is Dr. Francis Galgano, an associate professor at the Department of Geography at Villanova University and a former U.S. military officer. His latest book is The Environment Conflict Nexus, Climate Change and the Emergent National Security Landscape. He joins me now down the line. Hello, Dr. Galgano. Hello. Greetings from USA. For many people, well, they wouldn't appreciate the idea of the environment and national security to be joined at the hip, but you see it as a piece. Why is that? Yeah, I think the inertia here is that most people view the national security landscape as being a function of political military factors. But the environment does play a role and sometimes is that trigger that in places where there's already instability, social stratification, it's the thing that pushes a country over to the edge into either acute political instability or actual warfare. Can you give me some examples? Sure. I think a, a good example is uh, Ethiopia and the Agaden War back in the 1970s. Because of a number of political decisions after World War II, the Agaden was given to the Ethiopians, although the Somalis had an irredentist claim on the Agaden as their traditional land, and, and they were probably right. This is a political factor where the Somalis already wanted the Agaden back. In Ethiopia, they went through a horrendous 15-year drought. 
and desertification and conflict between agriculturalists and herders. And eventually the drought led to the forced migration of about 3 million people from the highlands near Addis Ababa into the Agaden region. Now, the Somalis clearly had a claim on the Agaden region. They saw the deposing of Haile Selassie as a political opportunity, but what alarmed them in 1977 was the mass movement of three million people into an area that they felt they had a claim on, and that may have, or certainly contributed to them attacking Ethiopia in 1977. It was a short, violent, bloody war, but that's a good example where in the middle of all of this political military problems, a massive drought caused the migration which perhaps triggered the attack in July of 1977. So now, of course, those were environmental factors in an environment of hostilities and conflict in difficult parts of the world. But what we're seeing now is as the effects of climate change become more pronounced, there's probably new areas that we wouldn't have thought would suffer from national security questions, but will because of climate change. What are these new areas that you foresee becoming troubling hotspots? Well, I see if you look through parts of southern Europe, in through some of the southern reaches of the Soviet Union that were previously stable, uh, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Romania, Hungary, they will rapidly become water scarce under climate change scenarios. They are less well-governed than the rest of their European neighbors, okay? And governance is one of the key factors here. So we can easily see places like that becoming, very quickly becoming either internally, internecine conflict, or externally seizing something across the border uh, that a neighbor has that they want. So what can we do to prevent these potential green wars from taking place? The research that I'm working on is to develop this index. You know, the idea is to identify states at risk right now based on the fewest number of important environmental factors, water, total fertility rate, governance. So we're really looking at exposure to climate change, their ability to adapt, and the vulnerability of the people and the ecosystem. And that's really the way my model is set up. So the idea is to identify those states at risk so that government leaders, intergovernmental panel leaders, leaders in, in nonprofits who work in relief efforts will at least have an idea what the potential map looks like over the next 30 years, which I'm working in right now. And then, of course, we can adapt my model to what do we see by the end of this century and going forward based on IPCC projections. And then at a regional scale, there are other factors that we can look at to identify places. Sea level rise is a good example. There are places throughout Oceania where countries may potentially disappear. And there are organizations looking at this, what, you know, the, the classic uh, environmental refugee, where do we put whole populations if they are forced to move? So that's the answer. The problem is, we run up against significant inertia and sovereignty issues when we work in, in this area. That's so interesting. Dr. Galgano, thank you very much. You're welcome. Now, regular listeners of the Babbage podcast will know that occasionally on the program we give away a book, 
one book, and you have to earn it. And this week, we're giving away a book written by the Economist language correspondent, Lane Green, and it's called Talk on the Wild Side, The Untamable Nature of Language. And the question we have is this. What is the shortest sentence in English that a computer may never be able to translate? Craft that sentence, send it to us at radioeconomist.com. We'll choose among all the replies, and one lucky listener will be sent a copy of the book. Finally, I'm on the Strand right now, one of the busiest streets in London, and I'm at a crosswalk, and the cars are streaming by. I'm going to press the button to cross, and it tells me to wait. And I am waiting. I press the button, but is anyone listening? Is anyone out there taking the signal and making the traffic light go red so I can cross? Because as far as I can tell, nothing has changed, and in fact, nothing ever changes when I press this button. So is this button actually doing anything, or is it a placebo button? One that exists purely to provide the illusion it is working, perhaps to fill my time as I wait for the lights to change. In fact, these apparently pointless buttons do exist and have been around for some time. I asked Ben Sutherland, a science correspondent for The Economist, about the history of the placebo button. Well, a few decades ago, New York City started deactivating a large number of its crosswalk buttons. Basically, the city decided that it would be better to put the systems on computer timers that kind of automated when pedestrians get a crosswalk signal. They left the mechanical buttons in place largely because they didn't want to bother paying money to have them removed. What happened, however, at least initially, was they found that a lot of pedestrians became uh, less willing to jaywalk because they were more likely to heed a system that paid attention to their input, at least if they believed that was the case. So have we actually understood why it is that people are more comfortable interacting with a placebo button rather than not? For that to work, people have to believe that the button is actually doing something. So I think the effects ended up being fairly short-lived. In fact, there's some evidence of places where people started getting upset because uh, they realized that the buttons, after a certain amount of time, word got around the buttons aren't working. People didn't like that. And so there was some kind of a reaction to that in a certain number of places. Why don't we actually get rid of the placebo button altogether and actually have buttons that work? Well, that's uh, what a number of cities did, including Beirut and New York. They uh, eventually started removing the mechanical buttons that weren't doing anything, partly because they decided to just go ahead and spend the money to get those uh, mechanical carcasses out of there because they were upsetting people who felt like, hey, this this is deception and we don't like it. So that actually has uh, happened. Okay. What is a button that I think actually does something, but I don't realize is actually a placebo button? Well, you have a number of them in software where people feel more comfortable clicking on the save button, but the data is saved automatically. I spoke with the founder, uh, Peter Omvli, of Sketch, which is a drawing software program, and he admitted that it is, quote, the save button is a historical artifact. He said it just makes people comfortable, so therefore we have it. So now if the placebo effect is wearing off, can technology allow us to go on better? Surely we're not far off crossings that can sense if I'm waiting there, can stop traffic before I arrive, and make sure I don't jaywalk, and if I do, find me. 
Absolutely. In fact, the technological trend is to go towards systems that are smart, that have, are using microwaves or infrared systems to, to spot not just when you have people at a crosswalk, but how many people you have. And eventually we'll have systems that are going to be making calculations saying, okay, well, it looks like we've got a lot of kids. We're therefore going to have a longer signal or perhaps elderly people. Let's give them a longer time to cross. So absolutely, we're moving in the direction of uh, greater responsiveness to individuals rather than less. Ben, this is fantastic. Thank you very much. Ken, glad to be here. Thank you. I have a small taste of that buttonless feature every morning in The Economist's own lift or elevator for our American listeners. I have to decide which floor I'm going to before I get in, and once in there, there's no button I can pummel to encourage the doors to close faster, no matter how much of a rush I'm in. I take a placebo over this any day. I'm Kenneth Couquier, and in London, this is The Economist. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 